So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. Uh, today we are beginning a new sermon series called In Christ Alone, and then the subheading of that is this, the life and church that Jesus builds, or that Christ builds. And so in that, literally we have more information, more letters have been written to or about the book of or to the church at Ephesus than any other church inside of the New Testament. So literally over the course of the next few years, unless God changes the course and directory and plan, um, we are going to cover all of those books. And so it's going to take us, um, we may take a break actually in the fall for a month to do a solo um, series, and I'll explain all that. Um, when we get to that, we may take some breaks here and there, but our goal literally over the next several years, unless God changes some things, is to work through all of the information that we have about how Jesus works in and through this church in Ephesus, both the people and that collective body as a whole. And so we're going to be covering a very um, you know, vast variety of, of topics and how Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit is infused into all of those things. We're going to cover some deep, deep doctrine here in just uh, about a month from now. We're going to be diving into such things as adoption and predestination and what does the before the foundation of the world mean and all that stuff inside of Ephesians 1. Um, I can't wait uh, for, toward the fall. Um, I'm going to do our first real series um, because it's in the book of Ephesians. I'm going to talk to you for probably several weeks on marriage. And uh, I just think that's going to be very important for us to see how Christ builds um, a godly marriage um, inside and through his word. And so there's just going to be a large variety of topics um, that we're going to be covering as we kind of exegete or work line by line, word for word, through these passages. We're going to do that very slow. Uh, my desire in, in preaching is um, to preach a shorter amount of time means we have to cover a smaller amount of passages. That's the only way I can do it, in theory. We'll see what happens. Um, but uh, that's kind of where we're heading over the next, not just year, but probably a uh, few years as we look at, in Christ alone, the life and church that Christ builds. All right. So in the book of Acts, we're jumping in in chapter 19. We have, there's this man named Paul. He used to be Saul. He was a persecutor. He declared holy war against the Christians. He wanted to eradicate them from the face of the earth. On his way to Damascus to persecute more Christians, Jesus shows up, knocks him off his horse. He meets the resurrected Jesus, and this forever changes his life and the course of history as this chief of sinners this terrorist against Christians now becomes probably the, the leading missionary, pastor, church planter the world has ever seen outside of Jesus himself. And so we see in this process, I can't go through the entire book of Acts, but either these are the Acts of the Apostles, or better yet, maybe even the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of God is, is growing the church. It's very interesting that if you read Paul and his letters, man, the, his goal in the early church um, fathers was to do three things. Worship Jesus, make disciples, and multiply. That's what they were about. That's what Paul was about. 
He wanted people to worship Jesus. He wanted to make disciples of people. And he wanted to see churches that plant churches, 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 that plant churches. Most of his letters are actually an asking for money so that more churches can be planted wherever Paul and his disciples want to go. We, we, Mission Church, are the byproduct of people worshiping Jesus, making disciples, and planting churches for now thousands of years. And that's the goal for it to continue. And so Paul is about Jesus' mission. And Paul goes and he is heading on his what is known as his third missionary journey. And he is heading from Antioch which is kind of his home base. That's my home church, right? Everybody likes to talk about it in the South. Where's your home church? That doesn't mean where you go, all right? That's where you grew up. My home church, Living Waters Church of God of Prophecy, Franklin, Kentucky. That's my home church, right? Well, how how many years has it been since you've been there? Oh, it's been like 30 years, but that's my home church, okay? We had this mentality where Paul's home church was in a city called Antioch. And pretty much, Paul would do these big, huge loops called these missionary journeys, and they would last years. It wasn't like just one 10-day cruise or a three-hour trip on a boat with some crazy folk, okay? This is a long, drawn-out process, this idea of worshiping Jesus, make disciples, and multiplying. And so Paul is on his third missionary trip in Acts chapter 19, and he's heading toward a city that he has never been to before. Now, if you come next week, I'm going to dive into a lot on this city called Ephesus because it's very pertinent to what's going to happen um, in our next section inside of the book of Acts. But for today, Paul is, is heading toward this land, toward Ephesus, uh, this city toward Ephesus. And upon arrival, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 19, as it was read for us, and it happened that while Apollos, this is another kind of evangelist guy that we meet inside the book of Acts, you can look him up. Apollos, and uh, a native, excuse me, I skipped ahead. Um, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, disciples does not always mean a disciple of Jesus. Even atheists and agnostics, did you know that they're disciples? We're all being discipled by something. It's to whom or what we are being discipled by. So every time... And you have to be, look at the context and what's happening. But every time that the word disciple inside of Scripture, it doesn't always mean that they are disciples like what we are talking about as followers of Jesus. Okay? It can mean student. It can mean learner. You can be a disciple of someone else. And that's what we find out here. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, unto what then were you baptized? They said, excuse me, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 of them. All right, so Paul is going to a new place. Um, Notice Paul's um, way of doing it. He finds some people, and he starts talking to them about the gospel. That is the way that the church is multiplied. We plant the gospel, 
And through the power of God's sovereign grace and working inside of their lives, many of them believe in those places, and then they start grouping up, encouraging each other, and doing all the one another's, and that forms then a church. So we don't plant the church without first planting the gospel. And this is on the forefront of Paul's lips constantly. He goes to this place, he meets these folks, and he starts to ask them questions. All right? So in this first group, there's some things that you need to get to. So when he, he asked them, he, he, I guess in conversation, you've got to understand as well is that everything that is written inside the Scripture, we don't get every line, every bit of the conversation. We are getting little snapshots, especially in the book of Acts, because it's narrative. And so we don't have the full conversation here, but Paul begins to understand, oh, these guys are disciples. They're, they are religious. These are not pagans. They're not atheists. They're not worshiping Zeus or Artemis like we'll get into next week. These guys seem to be probably Jewish, and they're probably worshiping Yahweh, and they are followers of John. Now, who's John? John is John the Baptist. That doesn't mean that he was a part of our denomination. It just means that he was baptizing people. And how was he baptizing people? He was calling them to prepare themselves. Hey, the Messiah is coming, and you a dirty, rotten scoundrel. You need to clean yourself up, literally in water baptism, to prepare for whoever the Messiah is, or when the Messiah comes, that you will be clean and prepared for his arrival. This is John doing this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we have these whole episode where Jesus is standing there, and, and, and then from then on, John the Baptist starts saying, hey, the Messiah I was telling you guys about for years and years and years, guess what? He has come. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His name is Jesus. I baptize you in water, but there is one who will baptize you in the Spirit. This is Jesus. So, John and the Baptist have been doing this for years. People had come from all around to the wilderness to hear John. And apparently, these guys had heard John and heard his ministry and, and uh, was baptized in water in preparation for the Messiah and then went back home. But they were disciples of the teacher of John the Baptist. And so, Paul, though, knowing that they're religious, knowing that they're probably at this point in the conversation, that they're even followers of John, he begins to ask them some questions. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, there's some interesting things where it says, um, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. It's, it's, an, it's a translation issue um, that really smart people, way smarter than me, tell me that inside of the Greek, it, it's not a question of that they've never heard of the Holy Spirit. This is probably hyperbole, or if you're from Edmondson County, hyperbole. Um, and in that, um, that they're, they're saying, they're not in essence saying that we have never ever heard of the Holy Spirit. These are Jews. The Old Testament speaks about the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. And as I mentioned earlier, part of John's message was, was that the Messiah would come and baptize them in the what? Spirit. Okay? So if they're good disciples and good learners, they probably have heard of the Holy Spirit. But what the question is, is they had not been made aware of Pentecost. Right? But they, are, they did not know that in Acts chapter 2, as Jesus is ascending, what does he say? I'm sending the Spirit. When the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my um, witnesses to Jamaria, some, uh, Judea. I just slammed like two words together. Uh, Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, right? 
And, and so they probably had not heard. Again, this is pre-television. This is pre-Fox News, right? Because you're Christian, you watch Fox News. Um, and this is pre-internet. This is pre-text messaging. These are pre-all of those things. It takes a long time for word to travel about different events. I mean, how many times have we been in a war and the war has been declared over, and yet there are fights that still happen? Why? Because the word had not got to them yet. Hey, the, the war is over, okay? And so we had this sort of thing taking place here. This is a season in the life in the history of the church of transition, all right? Jesus has come. He has lived. He has died on a cross. He's been buried. He's been resurrected. He has ascended. He has sent the Holy Spirit and in all of this, the church is transitioning from the Old kind of Testament to the New Testament church. And so there can be these loopholes in communication. They simply had not heard yet that the Holy Spirit had come. Now, so pause. He's talking to good church people here. He's talking to good religious people here. I love Alistair Begg. He's a pastor, teacher inside of America. If you do not listen to him, you should. Um, in one of the commentaries this week, and then I looked it up, they were talking about when Alistair Begg, when he preaches on this, he calls it um, Paul preaching to almost Christians. And I love that terminology. They're almost. They're cool with a Messiah that's coming. They're cool with the Holy Spirit. They, 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 they are, let's put it this way, folks. They're better people than you and I are. And yet, Paul looks at a bunch of religious people, and he says here, but here's, here's the deal. You know all this stuff, but you don't know Jesus. You're almost a Christian. You've almost got this. But if you don't understand the gospel and you don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit, that when you are saved, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit indwells you, then, then you're not there yet. I used to serve at another church that was like a big tent revival, and it was awkward every Sunday because we were told uh, as pastors, no matter who it was, that it, they did altar calls. And, and people just came by the hundreds, right? And they, they would fill up the altars. And it didn't matter if it was your mama, your greasy granny. It didn't matter who it was, all right? Your discipler, another pastor, that whenever anybody came to the altar, which was every Sunday, that we would ask them, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Yes, pastor. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? I don't know that you do. Uh, do you have a relationship? I mean, you just, do you, do you, I mean, just every person that you can imagine, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you have, and I used to think, man, this is the most awkward, so I'd just be like, I mean, I, I just, I did a lot of patting on people. Right? Because the same joker I last, asked last week that said, I'm a follower of Jesus, is the same joker that's at the altar this morning that I'm having to ask once again, are you a follower of Jesus? All right? And it used to be just really awkward for me, especially as a, an introvert. And it's like, it's just, it was weird. Really strange. But isn't that what Paul does? He simply does not assume that religiosity 
equals relationship with Jesus. Okay? You know a bunch of stuff, but you don't know Jesus. And look at what happens. John baptized with the power of repentance. He shares the gospel with the religious folk. Because they knew a peace, and it's not, it's not here to beat them up. I often think about Ibrahim, right? Ibrahim um, is a partner of ours inside of Niger. Um, he is a, uh, we've shown videos of him. He was a non-believer, Muslim, became a Christian. This brother cannot read, all right? So there are things, we can't say, go have a quiet time and learn systematic theology. So the only way that that brother learns sound doctrine and the Bible is when he is with missionaries or with guys like Mark Phillips who teach them, I mean, it's like fire hydrant to that brother's mouth. And the thing is, the entire time he's like, I need to go. So he comes, he gets filled up with all of this Bible because he can't go read it himself, and he anticipates and can't wait to get back to his home city. Why? So that he can share what he is learning. See, there can be some loops, especially during this time and inside of this culture. So what does Paul do? He shares the gospel with them, and by God's sovereign grace, what happens? They believe. They become Christians. They're no longer disciples of John. They're disciples of Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized. That's, that's baptismo. That's immersion in water. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Walk new in Christ. They're baptized in water in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. Now, quickly, because this is where I really struggled um, this week, and I, I'm going to come back to some of this here in just a moment. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in a minute, but, but here inside of this context, inside the book of Acts, we have this guy named Paul. He is an apostle. There's only 13 of those, okay? You got the 12, okay, not including Judas. We're talking about Acts chapter 2. You get, pick a straw, all right, Matthias. You fill in Judas's spot, and then the apostle Paul. These are men who are gifted in a specific, spiritual, anointed way, and no one has been since. There are 13 of those bad brothers, and we're going to see some crazy stuff happens when these guys are in the room. All right? So Paul is with them. He's not saying that they, now at this point, that they don't have the Holy Spirit. The Bible just tells us that he lays hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them. All right? So he touches them, and let me encourage you. We don't have that touch. We got cheese touch. If you have kids at your house, you'll know what that means. Older people, just go with it. All right? If you don't have kids, but we, we do not have that touch. My shadow does not heal anybody. But we see amongst these guys crazy things were happening at the hands, at the touch, at the shadow amongst these 13 men. And there has been no one on the planet to ever have that grouping of gifts for all of their ministry besides those 13 men that saw Jesus. Okay? Now I'm going to get to some of the issues with that here in just a minute because what, what, what takes place? Well, Paul touches them. 
the Holy Spirit comes upon them. It's not saying that the Holy Spirit isn't upon them because we're going to see that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. If you are a Christian, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But something weird does happen here. Paul touches them, and the Bible tells us that they begin to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Well, let's get it, Baptist. Speaking in tongues. Terrible translation. It should say, they began speaking in languages. All right? These are known languages. This is not erratic speech and gibberish. That's Babel. All right? And we, can go, we don't have time this morning. That's why I've struggled this week in writing several sermons because there's so many areas that we could go to here. Okay? Inside the book of Acts, the idea of an erratic speech or gibberish coming out of a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus is simply not there. This idea of a prayer language, okay? Now, we start talking about Corinthians. We're not going through that today. We're in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, there is not this idea of a prayer language, of a gibberish, of you can come up, put your hand on somebody, and they start speaking in this gibberish sort of unknown language. They are all known languages. So this means I go to El Mazalan, and I do not know a lick of Spanish except for chimichanga. All right? I don't even think I said that right. And so a guy comes to me, and I'm eating my, you know, uh, shrimp jaliscos, and I don't even know what jaliscos means. And I'm, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God comes upon me, and I can control this. It's not chaotic. And I begin to speak to my waiter the gospel in Espanol. And I do not previously know Espanol. All right? It could never happen to me again. But in that moment, God sees fit for the, the, the advancement of the kingdom, for that brother to hear the gospel in his native tongue, this is what we see throughout the book of Acts. So if you just segment the book of Acts, talking about speaking in tongues, you must say, and, and I know that there's some arguments, and I'm probably there with you in Corinthians, but definitely in the book of Acts, it is always a known language that these brothers didn't formally know. Also, when the Holy Spirit comes upon people inside the book of Acts, guess what also doesn't happen sometimes? Sometimes they don't speak in tongues. And they have no less the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us. They'll go to some areas. The, the Bible will tell us in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit comes upon these people, and it says absolutely nothing about them speaking in tongues. I mean, think about it. These brothers are in a foreign place. It is a metropolitan of people. And in this moment, God empowers them to speak in a known language. And what does this say? They begin to prophesy. All right? This is not some weird thing where you start talking in King James Version like you're God. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, I am God. I've heard all of this stuff. The word prophecy does not always mean the foretelling of the future. It typically means a foretelling of God. It is the preaching of the gospel. Imagine, these brothers just got saved. And the evidence that comes to them that this Holy Spirit thing that Paul is really talking about, God needed to shake them up a little bit so it's not just some weird cultic dude showing up at your adobe and saying, hey, do you have Jesus? You need the Holy Spirit. And, and 
and so what he does is to make sure that they know that he is real and that the Holy Spirit is real, God manifests himself to give evidence that the Holy Spirit is real in this moment. So they begin to speak in these known languages and then begin to prophesy. That means they begin to celebrate, they begin to think, they begin to preach the gospel, they begin to proclaim of the goodness of God. This is... We can't make this a normative thing. Okay, what do I mean by that? In that every time somebody gets saved, that we need to lay our hands on them, and we need to pray that they receive the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. We cannot take something that is descriptive by nature and make it prescriptive for everything. This is narrative. Okay, this would mean that also we all need to strip down to our whitey tidies and worship the Lord because that's what David did. Please don't do that. All right. It would mean that everybody needs to build a boat in the desert. It would mean that every daddy in here, if you're really faithful, you need to take your son, you need to climb up on top of a mountain with a knife, and you need to kill him to show that this kid is not really above God. So you can't take descriptive texts and make them prescriptive, and that's what a lot of people inside the book of Acts are trying to do. And it is extremely, extremely dangerous. All right? So um, Paul continues here. So we have these brothers. They're religious. They come to know Jesus. Then Jesus, or excuse me, then Paul keeps on going further into the city. And like he does over and over and over again, the first people he goes to is not, all right, where are the pagans doing sexually immoral things over here worshiping these people? Where are the atheists? You know, where's Stephen Hawking's here in Ephesus? I need to talk to him and Bill Maher and, and all these kind of guys. Let's, let's find celebrities in Hollywood. That's not where Paul goes. Guess where Paul goes? The synagogue. He goes to where, again, like we would call it the church. Why do the church need it? There are a lot of religious people that do not have a relationship with Jesus. So Paul, what does he do? He has these guys, they're converted, and it says in, the, in verse 8, and he entered in the synagogue, and there were three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in belief, um, speaking evil of the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning uh, daily in the hall of uh, Tyrannus. Um, this continued for two years, so that the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul is shared with John's disciples. Now he goes to the synagogue, probably hundreds if not thousands of Jewish people that have heard, they know all the things that Paul knows, they've heard about the coming Messiah, they are religious. Again, these people sitting inside the synagogue are probably better people morally than you and me. They're more obedient than you and me. And yet Paul goes and not just preaches once, but spends three months preaching to these people. It's interesting, later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, Peter's going to say, For this is the time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And what is the gospel? Jesus. So Paul is standing up amongst 
the Jewish church folk work with me. And, and, and he is preaching the gospel of Jesus. He is preaching the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus to a bunch of church folk that have been church folk for a very, very, very long time. But, and yet, what does the Bible say? It's very different than the first group's response. Right? Disciples of John, Jesus, he's it? Yes, we follow Jesus. We want to follow this Jesus. Baptize us, dunk us, fill us with the Holy Spirit, all this, all this sort of stuff. And yet he goes to a mass grouping of these Jewish people. And what is their response? They continued in unbelief. They spoke evil against the way. See, before we were called like Christianity and, and things like that, we were called people of the way. It's very reflective when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. All right? We were people of the way. and started, They started speaking evil of Christianity, of evil of this Jesus. It's interesting that it says they, they became stubborn. The Bible often say, you know, the Israelites are stiff-necked people, or in the early church, you're stiff-necked. That this is never a good thing for us to be. That we need to be moldable and pliable to the things of God, to the things of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is coming and he begins to preach to these folk. And this causes major problems for Paul. They did not want to hear this. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Our temptation is always to make our traditions or experience trump truth. These people have been Jewish, again, for years. How many times have I walked into a church or had conversations with different people, and they're like, well, I just, I just don't believe that. And it's like, well, why don't, brother and sister, I want to be humble here. Teach me my wrong here. And they'll say, well, things, well, I just, that's, we just don't do it that way. This is not how we do it. Or they'll say things like, well, well, my mom and daddy, they just, they, I was not raised that way. This cannot be true. Well, my, well, my granddaddy, he was the pastor at the church, and, and he never spoke, never taught about any of these sorts of things. Surely it cannot be true. See, we love to do this with the idea of programming, that we will program the church to death and call it ministry, and yet most of that ministry can be void of the Holy Spirit actually at work. And yet this is because this is what we've always done. We will inwardly die and rot as a church while holding on to sacred cows that need to be killed. And we have to be careful in this because every one of us in this room have sacred cows. And typically, you're cool with the pastor killing other people's. It's when we get to yours that you have the biggest problem. And that's typically when you leave a church. If you're married to a program. If you're married to a tradition, this is what we do. And we like to place those things. I mean, I've had people tell me some of the craziest stories, and I'll be like, well, man, how is that reflective in Scripture? And they're like, it's not there. But you can't deny my experience. I know I was there. Okay? Now, please hear me. I'm not saying in all cases, but did you know that in, in lots of pagan cults, people speak in tongues? In voodoo, 
and some Hinduism. There's this kind of gibberish. It's very pagan. Okay? Now, again, all four, we can have discussions later about those things within the Christianity. Okay? But, but we need to get this. If you talk to a Mormon, they believe in continued revelation. Did you know that? They believe that Jesus is, uh, is Lucifer's brother. They believe that when the Bible tells us in Genesis, let us create them in our image, that they are talking about an endless amount of gods there in that us. They're not simply talking about the Trinity. And yet, if you were to say to them, well, what about what the Bible says? They will come back to you and they say, well, I have prayed about it and God has revealed to me that this is true. Even if it contradicts what's in the red letters. In Catholicism, Tradition trumps word, still that way. If the Pope declares something that goes rightly against the Scripture, like, all right, God was really a pink elephant, then from then on until another Pope comes along, guess what God is? It's a pink elephant. And it can be really easy for us to point fingers at all those things, but let's all face it. We all have our personal preferences We all have things that we love, and many of us love those things above Jesus, above the Word of God. And this is extremely dangerous. For Jesus in Christ alone, for the life and church to to be built on the person and work of Christ, then we must have our traditions, our idols, our personal preferences are, are laid waste. They are destroyed. They are chopped up. Like in the book of Exodus when Moses comes down the hill and he says, you take that cold calf that you're calling Yahweh and you chop that sucker up into gold dust and you drink it as a sign of, of, of discipline toward you. That's what we need God to do without the drinking. All right? And so the thing is, let's not create those things to begin with. But let's stay faithful to Jesus. And so Paul shows up on this place, and they're like, nah, man, that's not how we do this thing. All right? We know we're sinners. That's why we have the sacrificial system. You know, we, the Messiah, not Jesus, could not have been it. We're looking for something else, and still in 2018, guess what the Jews are looking for? A Messiah. Because they're holding tradition above truth. Mission Church, let us not fall into that. So we see two different episodes here. The gospel is shared in both of them, and and we have this group of believers, and then Paul shares the gospel to a group of Jews they're stubborn, all this sort of stuff. And so what does Paul do? He goes out and he, is, he works out a dude, I guess, with this guy named Tyrannus, um, Tyrannus, Source Rex. And um, he, he works out this deal um, to go and to use this auditorium to preach the gospel. And the Bible tells us here that, that he does this where he goes, uh, and from there he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, um, Tyrannus, excuse me, um, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard um, the word of the Lord, um, both Jews and Greeks. And so what Paul does is, it's believed by most scholars, is that from the hours of 11 till 4 in the afternoon, this was the heat of the day, pretty much people took a long siesta during that time, is that Paul himself would work on his tents. He was supporting his own ministry inside of Ephesus. And then everyone would take a break inside of the city from 11 to 4. This brother is preaching. Now you think my hour is long. 11 to 4. And what does it say? 
every day. Seven. Seven days a week. This brother, I imagine him, he's working with his leather. He's tying up all this stuff. He's like, oh, look at this. This is a one person. This is a two person. This is a three person, ten person. He's working on these tents. Eleven o'clock, ding, ding, ding. The lunch bell from eleven to four. This brother goes into this hall and begins to preach eleven to four, seven days a week for two years. So that Jews and Gentiles, hey brothers, I'm going to start with you. This, Jesus typically says this, right? We're going to preach to the Jew first and then the Gentile. So I went to the Jews. Guess what? They would not listen. So we're going to everybody else. And this begins the church plant and the movement of the Holy Spirit inside of this place called Ephesus. So how does Jesus build the church? How does Jesus going to build our lives? Jesus is going to build the church through the power of the Holy Spirit by planting of the gospel through the church. And it is a long, drawn-out process. Paul ends up spending more time in the city of Ephesus than any other. I think it's around three years total that he is going to be there preaching, teaching, raising up elders, talking about family. He's going to write them letters. He loves these folks, but it is not always easy. So, who is the Holy Spirit? We've thrown out that term, and yet again, for many of us, it is a struggle to really come to the concept or to the personhood of who the Holy Spirit is. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is not a force, okay? You can't throat grip with the Holy Spirit, all right? Because let's all face it, we would all be trying that out a lot. And it would get really awkward to see random people across the aisles. Right? Or it, it is not Hogwarts. Okay? That's, that's Harry Potter. I may have just said the devil for some of you. Okay? It is, it is not magic. The Holy Spirit is not a force. And guess what else it is? It is not an emotion. Growing up, whenever the air would come on inside of our church, we would get cold chill bumps, and we would often say, look at those Holy Ghost chill bumps. Now, it's just the air, the AC, okay? It is not an emotion. Can he have emotions? Yes. But that's not what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Godhead. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He's the active agent of the Trinity on this earth right now. The Holy Spirit is powerful, and he empowers the church. The Holy Spirit is the counselor and the teacher, as in John 14, 26. We see in the Scripture that the Holy Spirit has intelligence, emotions, and real relationship with God's people. He leads us, and he witnesses to us. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts of encouragement and edification and expansion of the gospel to the ends of the earth. He gives life. He is what resurrected Jesus he gives power. He purifies. He guides. He directs God's people. He gives assurance. He teaches us and he illuminates the scriptures. He unifies the church. Brothers and sisters of Mission Church, we need to understand that inside of the, 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 the even inside early Christians, they had to grow and mature as well. I think sometimes that we get this picture that all of a sudden, um, like Paul on the road to Damascus when he's knocked off the horse, like just becomes a superhuman Christian. And he doesn't. 
Paul has many issues. There's the belief that even that Paul, after becoming a Christian, takes a Nazarite vow, which is something for Jewish people, and it's really weird. Okay, like you don't bathe, don't shave. That's what I'm in right now. Um, like you can't go to funeral. I mean, all these like high, high rules and stipulations. It's believed that Paul probably after his conversion took a Jewish Nazarite vow, okay? So there's some wrestling there. Peter, we see inside the New Testament, Peter, he's not for sure about this whole Gentile thing. Still, he's seen the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he's still like, oh, I don't know about that, you know. And then he still doesn't know about the food and all, the, all these sorts of things. I mean, we see Peter wrestle and grow in his discipleship as well. Many of us, inside our relationship with Jesus, need to come to, to be okay with the process. We need to press in to the process. We see the strugglings of these guys. We see the strugglings of these gals. They, they were taught things by their mamas and daddies. And with good intentions. But they weren't true. They weren't true. See, the goal is to be faithful above all things. And so that means for all of life that we're going to press in to Jesus. We're going to press in to this Holy Spirit. Because he, he is here. If you're a believer, He is, he is in you. Bring this all together. In 1997, Jesus saved me. But in 1997, this was not the first time that I heard about Jesus. Okay? I grew up in a, a Pentecostal holiness, um, I would say even charismaniac at times, church. And with good intentions, I come from a long line of Pentecostal Eastern Kentucky Pentecostal mountain, like we did everything but bring out the snakes, and it was because everybody in my family was scared of them. Okay? So when Jesus saved me, all I knew was what I had been taught. I had I'd started preaching when I was 16, not a Christian. I sang in a praise team, not a Christian. I traveled all over the state of Kentucky in a drama team. Okay, not a Christian. I didn't say bathroom words, as my mama called them. All right, I, I, there were lots, there was a long list. I was a goody, goody. I knew all the Bible stories simply because I'd been taught them and I could regurgitate them to the nth degree. I had not read the Bible on my own. I had a relationship with Jesus simply by hearsay. I was really good at it, though. I was a mime for everything I had been taught. And so in 1997, inside of my dorm room, when Jesus saves me, I became consumed with the Bible. And I began to go, this is very different than the way that I was raised. And it wasn't like I was trying to beat up my family. I remember time after time going to them, to leaders, pastors, my parents, and saying, well, what about this? If, if it doesn't mean or like, what about this? 
I remember hearing things like, man, you cannot lose your salvation. I got involved with a campus ministry called Crew where I met Thomas Weekly. And I started hearing things like, if you are really saved, you can't lose that. And I remember saying, this is a load of heresy. And I cannot believe that you guys are telling people that they cannot lose their salvation. Now, I know biblical grounds for believing that. I was simply taught that all of my life, so I was regurgitating what I, taught, what I was taught. With good intentions. They love me. It kept me from doing a lot of bad things. It also kept me from having a relationship with Jesus. And then, imagine just for a moment that I started hearing things like sovereign grace. What? I've been dating this beautiful blonde for quite some time, and uh, Laura and I were getting uh, really serious, and I remember in a, after a theological conversation that, that my then-girlfriend threatened me lovingly and just said, I want you to know, um, we're not going to talk about marriage, but I just, you need to understand, I cannot and will not marry a man who believes like you do. You need to be in the Word. You need to know the Bible. Because what you're spouting out, it, it simply is not there. So it drove me even further into the Word. See, I grew up in this perpetual uh, cycle. I would get saved, get water baptized, get sanctified, all right? Because those are different. Then get filled with the Holy Spirit. That means with the evidence of speaking in tongues. I was raised, you do not have the Holy Spirit at all unless you speak in an unknown gibberish, a static language. That's the way I grew up for 19 years. Then what would happen is, then I would sin. And guess what? When you sin, what happens to you? You lose your salvation. So then I would get saved again. Then I would go to the altar the next Sunday. I would ask the Lord to sanctify me, which was a work right then. It was not a lifelong process. You had to get that done because the Holy Spirit can't indwell somebody that's not sanctified. So then I would get sanctified again. Then my, my great-grandmother would beat my jaws to death until I spoke in tongues. And then you know what I would do? Sin again. I had to get saved again. I mean, it was this never-ending, unbiblical cycle that was my life. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's why I say I, I've gotten baptized probably more than any of you in this room. Because I was just going through this cycle. I remember going to a church camp, and at this church camp, literally at the altars, they would have a sign that says, if you want to get saved, you come pray here. If you want to get sanctified, you come to this part of the altar. If you want to get filled with the Holy Spirit, you come here. One of those men that was inside of that, an evangelist at my, my like, youth church camp, I remember sitting next to this girlfriend, a girl that was a friend, next to me. She was like, I want the Holy Spirit. I want to speak in tongues. I want him to be inside of me. I mean, she's just crying, begging for God to fill her with the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Literally, I promise you, he sat right down next to us, the evangelist did, and said, will chastity say fa-la-la-la-la-la over and over and over again, and the Holy Spirit will then take over your tongue and you'll start speaking in tongues. That man is now a homosexual and is propagating the homosexual agenda. 
You know how jacked up that is? Say fa-la-la-la-la-la a bunch. Not in the Bible. See, brothers and sisters, God did not save me from atheism. God saved me from religion. I would have been one of those jokers of John or, or one of those people sitting inside of the synagogue that, that, and by the grace of God, he pulled me from that. Many of us are almost Christian. Many of us are religious. Many of us got the head knowledge. Many of us are, are good, and we show up on a Sunday, and we tip God, and, and we're, we're good, moral, American, southern people who, who you know, buy shirts with whales on the, on, the, on the chest. I mean, we're good, good folk. We're Republican. We wave flags on July the 4th, and the thing is that God is into saving not just the agnostic, not just the atheist who does not believe in God, but many people sitting inside of the church are lost today without God. They have become numb to this. They've become just kind of, it's so true. It's just, this is what we do. This is how, how it goes on. And I want you to know that inside of this place, as a community of believers, that Jesus probably needs to save some of us sitting in this room. And this morning, we beg that he does. The hardest people are always to reach is those who believe they got it. It's the hardest people. And so in this, we learn. We learn like Romans 8, chapter 9. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact, God dwell, excuse me, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells you, in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong in him. I want you to know that if Jesus has really saved you, guess what? We don't get theology from Acts. We're not driven by theology, but we get it from books like Romans. And so when Paul says to the church at Rome and to these faithful believers, guess what? If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then you're not his. But if you have the Spirit of Christ, guess what? You're his. Like he's in you. It's a package deal. The Holy Spirit is not this class system amongst Christianity that some people have got him and some people don't. And you got to clean yourself all really nice and up and, and let loose of your tongue in order to get the Holy Spirit. No, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Continue on in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are doubters, not in the flesh, and live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. For all who have led by the Spirit um, of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if the children, then heirs, and heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, does not lay dormant in true believers. He doesn't. He is at work. If you want to know the real evidence of the Holy Spirit inside of your heart, which is evidence of true salvation, I want you to know it is not levitating, it is not speaking in tongues, it is not the gift of healing. All those things could be awesome, especially levitating. Um, healing, you know, it's up there. Um, but the true evidence of the Holy Spirit inside of you is what? A life of repentance, a life of faith. 
is water baptism? Is the Holy Spirit generating the gifts of the Spirit amongst you? But also is the multiplication of the church. And yet, mission, I'm concerned that there are three things that we must fight for in regards to the Holy Spirit. Fight for or against. The two we need to fight against. The last one we need to fight for. I'm going to do some alliteration here. I'm a good Baptist today. We need to fight not to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. In many of our circles, Baptist, Reformed, the Holy Spirit, we're really afraid of that. We're afraid of Him in that way. We're afraid that we'll lose control. We're afraid of just, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's talk about God the Father. Let's talk about Jesus. And all of those are, are great and beautiful things. But we must not be afraid of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works. But we must all do those things with discernment and coming back to the Scripture and saying, okay, is what we're seeing reflective of what we see inside of the Bible? And if it's not, we need to be able to discern then that's not the Holy Spirit. See, being afraid of the Holy Spirit makes us afraid to do what Paul has done, and that's to share the gospel, to be bold, to be courageous in the sharing of our faith with religious and non-religious people. We must not, Mission Church, be afraid of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn and, and draw in intimacy and relationship with the Holy Spirit. What's really interesting is my friends who are currently on the mission field or have been on the mission field, um, even if they are kind of from Reformed Southern Baptist um, kind of perspective, have a very different perspective on these things than a lot of us sitting back here in comfortable land. People who went who said, man, all that stuff is dead. That's not the way the Holy Spirit works. But you get on the front lines of pushing back darkness in the world. And I'm telling you, God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, they are all at work there. And there are some things that are happening inside of global missions that are very reflective of what we're seeing inside of Scripture. Now, do they have to fight these other things as well? Yes, they do. But we need to not be afraid of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn who He is. The second thing that we need to fight against is, is abuse of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk some about grieving of the Holy Spirit and those sorts of things coming up as well. But here's the two pendulums. It's either he doesn't work like this, we don't really know who he is, let's not talk about him, and that's the afraid camp. Or the way abuse takes place inside of the church in regards to the Holy Spirit, and you've got all of these things that are happening inside of of churches and inside of people's lives that completely contradict what we see inside Scripture. This is, if you've ever, if you go home on YouTube and you type in some of these things, I mean, you're going to see people barking like dogs, no joke, laughing like hyenas, acting drunk and jerking and all this sort of stuff. None of that is reflective of what we see inside the Bible. There's a group of people inside the United States that believe that they are the new apostleship. 
that they are receiving special revelation from God. And I'm not talking about Bubba's church over, you know, in Scottsville, you know, way out in the country. It's got like 10 people. It's a cult. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about thousands of people inside mega church churches coming from these pretty much three, dom- I mean, they, I think they call themselves like the three rivers. Or, I mean, it's something crazy where they're punching the cancer out of people. They're, you know, believing that the glitter is falling from the ceiling and that God turns their feelings into gold. I wish he'd do that to mine because I bust that tooth out, take it to the pawn shop. All right? I mean, there is this crazy, and that's what I call charismaniac mentality. That is not biblical workings of the Holy Spirit. This may get me in trouble. I, I think that's demonic. All right? Flopping, twitching, drunken acting, uh, just erratic behavior. I mean, I, I've watched the Holy Ghost hokey pokey this week. And I'm not talking about me and you and a group of friends in my living room. Hundreds of people in a worship gathering doing the hokey pokey in Jesus' name. All right? This is abuse. This is blaming something that is not of God and placing it on the personhood of God. We're not talking about that either. We don't want to abuse who He is and His work. With the third one, and this is what we need to fight for. So we're fighting against two things, afraid, being afraid and abuse. We want to fight for adoration of the Holy Spirit. Adoration. The Holy Spirit is not the cousin Eddie of the Trinity. He, he, and many times we, we treat Him like also like Cinderella. We can be afraid of him. It's like, hey, hey, brother, you need to go back home. Holy Spirit, don't show up back up here. Or we can treat him like Cinderella and try to abuse him, squash him, use him poorly and wrongly. And yet the Bible is clear that we need to adore the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He is not God the Son. He is not God the Father. But he is not any less God. He is God the Holy Spirit. Spirit, and we should seek a biblical reflection of all of his gifts inside of our lives, and that's where we want to come to as Mission Church. Don't stop pursuing, we are called people of the way, not the end. It is a journey, it is a pursuit. Today, I'm literally going to close with reading some scripture to you. And then pray for us and lead us in a time of communion. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 14. I can think of no better commentary on who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does than Jesus. If you know somebody who's better, let me know. In John chapter 14, and then I'm going to pray. says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
I will not leave you as orphans. Praise God this morning that He has not left us as orphans as we deserve. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world would see me no more. But you will see me because I live in you. I live because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me nor does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach. So he's going to help us. Now Jesus tells us that he will teach us. What does he teach? You all things. And thirdly, bring to your remembrance all that I have said. See, the Spirit is amongst his people, and he is causing within us what? Worship toward Jesus. He's constantly reminding us how awesome Jesus is. Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give you. Not as the world gives you, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you will have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He, he has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. Will you rise with me? And let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit. 